Glad you guys are here. Thanks, Jim. Uh, welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream as well. Um, just a couple of announcements real quick. Uh, you can look through the bulletin and uh, see what the important stuff is. But tonight, we're uh, not going to meet for prayer at 5.30. I have an event at the high school this afternoon that I, I don't know how long that's going to go. So um, we're not going to meet at 5.30. But new members class is going to meet at 6. So uh, please plan on showing up here, uh, new members at 6, and we'll jump back into it. It's been a couple weeks off because of Easter, uh, but we'll get back into it tonight. Also, one more thing I wanted to point out to you. Um, uh, there's a QR code on the back of here for attendance. If you would prefer to take the attendance uh, electronically, or wh whatever the word is that the kids use, uh, just uh, uh, hook up with the QR code on the back here. It, but, but one way or the other, though, if you could pass the guest register down the aisle so that uh, people could sign it, um, whether or not uh, you use it or not, that would be great. Okay, uh, that's all I've got. Uh, let's go ahead and stand and sing the first hymn.
Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, Young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen.
may be seated. Acts reading from this morning, from chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Someone came and told them, look, men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from Revelation. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the lamp stands one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, if Gabe Moldenhauer and Addie Brockenhoff can come forward with their parents and godparents. So, uh, double baptism this morning, which is kind of special. Uh, we're kind of on a hot streak of baptisms right now, which is an amazingly good thing. We'll have one next week, too. Uh, also, uh, today, this is really special as well. I don't know how many of you know, I think some of you know, that Dave's dad is a pastor, Pastor Paul Moldenhauer, and he's here, and he's going to baptize Gabe, which is really kind of a cool thing, too. So, um, yes, um, Dave and Kenzie, if you want to step forward up here, yeah. Um, baptism, of course, and we talked about this last week, um, it's, a, it's an incredible gift of God. God, throughout the story of Scripture, uh, God frequently saves his people through water, whether it's um, God saving Noah and his family through the flood, whether it's God saving Israel, crossing the Red Sea and destroying their enemies, uh, God saving Naaman the Syrian uh, by having him uh, be baptized in the Jordan River. And so when we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus commanding baptism, it fits right in with this story of God rescuing his people through this water, which functions both as judgment and as salvation. And so this morning, uh, Gabe and Addie are going to come and God's going to place upon them the water of his word in baptism. Gabe and Addie, receive the sign of the cross on your forehead and on your heart, marking you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified and risen. Faith is a gift. We talked about this last week too, and I'm going to talk about it probably next week. Uh, Faith is a gift. It's not something that we earn uh, through uh, our good works. It's not something that we earn by uh, by asking Jesus into our heart or by coming forward for baptism. It's purely a gift. It's an act of God. And one of the things that that means is that we don't just bring our kids to the waters of baptism and say, well, now this is good to go. Uh, They've received the waters of baptism, and they're fine. It's a part of a whole lifetime of training and learning. And we know that Dave and Jamie and and Devin and McKenzie are going to be faithfully bringing uh, their kids to God's house, teaching them at home. We are going to have a part of that too as their broader church family. And so uh, because of that, I'm going to ask the parents and the godparents some questions here. And I ask you, do you renounce the devil in all his works and all his ways? If so, say yes. And do you believe in the God who's revealed to us in Scripture? in whom we confess in the Apostles' Creed. If so, if you guys can stand with me now, and we're going to confess the Apostles' Creed together. If you need it, it's in the back cover of your hymnal. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You all may be seated. In light of Jesus' command, not just to baptize, but also to teach everything He commanded, do you promise to bring them to the worship with the gathering of God's people, teach them the commandments and the promises of the gospel, and pray for their spiritual growth? If so, say yes. May God help you to do this important work so that Gabriel and Addison will be faithfully brought up in the arms of Jesus. Paul, let me switch places with you. turn. Addison Grace Brockenhoff, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And may God help you. May God, who has caused you to be born again of water and of the Spirit, and has forgiven all your sins, strengthen you with His grace unto life everlasting. Amen. And now, uh, Angela, you want to, you grab Gabe, and I'll grab Addie. And we're going to uh, sing Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the
爱神说。Gabe and Addie and all of you, may the Lord preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth, even forevermore. Amen. You guys may return to your seats, and we will sing the sermon hymn. Gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 24. Uh, that very day, which is the day of the resurrection, we ended uh, 
uh, this is right after the text that we read last, read last Sunday. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some, of our, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find this body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they didn't see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel of the Lord. So uh, last week, uh, of course, we read the first part of this story in Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24 is just a magnificent 
text of Scripture. And one of the things we noticed was that, um, unlike us, for whom, uh, for, for those of you who are Christians, for whom Easter morning is like, you know, you, you, you've done the Good Friday service, and you, you get to church Easter morning, and it's a moment of celebration, of course, the whole day is celebra- celebratory. Uh, they were not celebrating at all. There's just mass confusion. Nobody knows what's going on. They all, you know, we looked at the word in the ESV, it's marveled, but it's actually, uh, confu- it's a word for confusion. Uh, nobody can figure out what's happening here. Some people say that the, the body of Jesus isn't in the tomb. Some people go and check it out, but even then, like, you know, what does that mean? What's happened? What's going on? Next week, we're going to look at the back end of Luke 24, and in that part, Jesus is going to meet with all of his disciples together. And meanwhile, we have this transition story where uh, it starts off with confusion. It ends with some confusion, too, the sort of mass confusion when everybody's like kind of scrambling to figure out what's happening here, what's going on. And Jesus is easing his disciples into the knowledge that he's risen from the dead. One of the reasons why he has to do this is because he wants them to understand what the resurrection of the dead means and what that means for his Messiahship. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lord of the universe? And how does that connect with his suffering? The other thing that this text does, and I, I, I didn't realize that, I don't know why I didn't realize this until this week. I, I don't, if, if you guys, I don't know how many of you have read this text of scripture before. I hope you have, but we actually don't read the story of the road to Emmaus in the lectionary on Sundays. Like, I frankly was shocked, because this is one of the best stories. It, it is my favorite post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, but it actually shows up in the lectionary on Easter Monday, of all things. I don't, I, I, who has Easter Monday services? And so it's just not in there, and um, it's, it's super important. It's like almost it just feels like a crime to me because it's so, it's like it, it, the ball's on a tee with this section of scripture. I mean, here's what I mean. Luke wants us, and, and last week I focused on in here, and, and I apologize. For some of you, this is like, this was not entertaining for you at all. But on Easter, I try to do this because we always end up having people who are kind of on the fringes and uh, skeptics and doubters. Not that, not, not that we don't have those people here this morning, but there's more of them on Easter Sunday. And what I want to do is I want to look at the resurrection story of Jesus and talk about it as historical reality. And so there's this, it's sort of pedantic, it's a little bit like, well, if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. It's a lot of history and stuff. But I don't want to leave it at that because the question is, Jesus rose from the dead, that's great. Intellectual assent to that is important. But if it stops there and doesn't end up becoming a personal relationship with the risen Christ, then, I mean, Satan knows that Jesus rose from the dead. It does not do him a lot of good. And what Luke is trying to do is he's trying to tell us through this really, really powerful story, how is it that you and I can know the resurrected Jesus? How can St. James have a, res- have, a, have a relationship with the resurrected Christ? It's almost too easy. Like if you, just reading this text, it's like, a, a, like I said, the ball's on a tee. There's two ways in this text that Jesus' resurrection becomes real here in this room with us this morning. And the first one is through the reading of the scriptures, through God's word. God gives us his word so that, not just so we can know stuff about him, and not so that we can just uh, know the story of scripture, but so we can have a personal relationship as a body of believers with the risen Christ. So the disciples, look back at verse 19 with me. These two guys on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples, 
Jesus comes up and he says in verse 19, he's, uh, you know, what are you guys talking about? And they said, it's about Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, this is, look at verse 21 with me. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So the implication there is that he's not, he wasn't. Now we know he wasn't the one to redeem Israel. We'd hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But now we, we know he wasn't the one to redeem Israel. Well, what do they mean, redeem Israel? Uh, redeeming Israel, that's Exodus language. God redeems his people out of the land of Egypt. What are they wanting? They want the new redemption of Israel to happen there in, in their time. In other words, they want the present-day Pharaoh to be destroyed God to liberate them, Israel, from slavery and establish them as a free people. They want revolution from Rome. That's what they want. That's why they followed Jesus. That's why they went to the garden with them. That's why they pulled out the swords and were ready to fight. And then Jesus is like, nope, I'm going to get arrested. And they bail on him because now they know he wasn't a real Messiah. We had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. But now we know he didn't do it. Herod's still in charge. Pontius Pilate's still in charge. Caesar's still lurking above the whole thing as the Lord of the world. And this guy was a failure. It's really sad. We thought he did all these mighty in word and deed. He preached these great sermons. He did all these incredibly powerful miracles. We thought for sure he was the guy. Just huge disappointment. I don't know where you've been at, Jesus. We didn't call him Jesus, right? We don't know where you've been at, but this is a huge disappointment. Jesus' response, though, is great. Look down at verse 26. Um, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. So he takes Moses and the prophets, he takes the Old Testament, takes the Hebrew Bible, and he interprets to these two guys all the things about himself that have to do with what he says in verse 26. It's necessary that the Messiah should suffer. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. And he's going to take them back to Scripture and point out, look, all along this was the plan. The Messiah was going to be a sufferer. Now, what's intriguing about this, if you're a nerd about the Bible, is that there's not really a proof text in the Old Testament that says the Messiah will come and the Messiah will suffer. It's not about like, here, let me show you these two texts that will help you really understand this. He really has to start at Moses and go through the prophets because the whole Old Testament is a story of God redeeming his world through the suffering of his people. And sometimes that gets focused down onto this one representative sufferer, this servant who's going to suffer. Let me, if I can, just shoot through some good examples of this from Scripture. Zechariah 12, is, Zechariah 9 through 14 is a great example of this. It pictures God saving the world Someday coming and saving the world. And it alternates that. If you go, go read Zechariah 9 through 14. It alternates that with this vision of the suffering one who's going to come and somehow be a part of God saving his world. I'll just give you a few examples from, uh, from that. From Zechariah 12, verse 7. The Lord will give the salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, 
They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So what is that about? It's like this story about God delivering his people and punishing the bad guys. And then it says on that day, they're going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to be celebrating. And then they're going to sudden shift in tone. Then they're going to look on the one whom they have pierced and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over for a firstborn. Then it transitions back to the glory. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. These two things go together. There's some sort of symbiotic relationship in the Old Testament between the suffering of this representative, the suffering of God's people, and God's plan to rescue the whole world through his chosen servants, Israel, the seed of Abraham. Classic one is Psalm 22. We talked about this several years ago, if you remember here on um, uh, Lent service evenings. Psalm 22 starts off with this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, of course, says the line he says from the cross. Psalm 22 tells this remarkable story of this one who's been completely abandoned by God, completely forsaken, without hope, and is just crying out, why have you done this? Why have you done this, God? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Sarcasm. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. This is Psalm 22. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Then right in the middle of Psalm 22, there is this transition. And it goes, save me from the mouth of the lion. Then you can kind of, if you're reading Psalm 22, you can kind of feel the pause. And then the psalmist says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then it takes off. It's all glory and power and salvation and victory. And it wraps up this way. For you, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. In the space of 28 verses it goes from God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? People are murdering me. And over the course of the psalm, it transitions to, by, by the end, God, you rule over all the nations. You're the king of the world. You're in control of everything. What's going on there? Is that some sort of like schizophrenia? Or is there some sort of symbiotic relationship between the suffering of God's chosen servant and the redemption of the world? Uh, I'm t- debating how many of these to do because I, I, I love all these texts, and I, but I don't want to bore you. Uh, so, uh, Isaiah 52, now we actually read this on Good Friday. It's just the classic example. Uh, let me just describe it to you real quick, and then I'll go on to the next one, and then we'll be done with this. Isaiah 52 through 53, the, the, the section we started with on Good Friday starts off, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims gospel, who says to Israel, your God reigns. The Lord bears his holy arm, flexes in front of all the nations. He tells his people, get out of Babylon and come home because I'm in charge. I'm now the king of the world. Behold, uh, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then a transition. Unlike Psalm 22, which goes from suffering to vindication. This one goes from vindication and kingdom back down to suffering. His appearance was so marred behind 
human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows, we read this on Friday, last Friday. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And, by, and with his wounds, we are healed. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Somehow this servant suffering, being killed for the sins of the people, is going to somehow bring about the kingdom of God. Look up and see the messenger coming and say, a guy is beautiful. This, this message of gospel, the, the, the message that our God reigns is beautiful. One last one, just because I'm kind of on another hot streak, which is quoting Psalm 118 in sermons. Did I tell you that Psalm 118 is one of the most important psalms in the Bible? Open to me the gates of right. It's about the rebuilding of the temple. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 118 collected, prayed, sung in corporate worship in Babylon when the temple's destroyed, but it's looking forward to this day when the temple's going to be rebuilt. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. They're imagining the, the rebuilt temple. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. And all of a sudden, out of the middle of nowhere, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So it's imagining this rebuilt temple. And right in the middle, there's this little, the stone the builders rejected to become the head of the corner. What does that have to, what does that have to do with anything? Well, when you get to the New Testament and you see that Psalm 118 these texts that I just read are quoted a gazillion times. And you know that the New Testament writers are on to it. That there's this symbiotic relationship between the suffering of the one, the suffering of the Messiah, and future vindication. And now, if you ever played a game or, uh, or you know, worked on a machine at work or tried to put together something that you bought and you didn't really understand it, and you're, you kind of, have, kind of know what's going on, but you're putting it together, or you're playing the game, and you just don't really understand the rules. And at some point, somebody comes along and says, oh, but, but the rules say this. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute. Now I get it. Or like you're trying to put together something, and you're like, it's just like not going well, and your wife comes along and says, I think that that part actually goes there, and you're like, no way. I know what I'm doing. And then when she's not looking, you put that part there, and you're like, this totally makes sense now. This is what's happening to these two disciples and the rest of Jesus' friends is that they have in their minds that the Messiah is going to come and beat Rome. And they understand so much about it, mainly the thing they get, which is their saving grace, is that they know that this Jesus guy is the Messiah. But they're playing the game with the wrong rules. They're trying to put the thing together and they've got all the parts out of order. And when Jesus comes along and says, don't you remember what the Old Testament says? The Messiah has to suffer before entering his glory. And then it's going to be this epiphanal moment. That's what's going on here. That's it. That's what's going on here. So, takeaway. What can we take away from what Jesus says about Moses and the prophets telling the story of his suffering? So, a couple things, three things, and we're going to come back to this at the end. First of all, all of Scripture is about Jesus. Jesus has got no problem at all opening up the Old Testament and saying, this is actually talking about me. Second thing is, the Jesus who we meet in Scripture, Old and New Testament, is a suffering Messiah. He's not a wise teacher, although that's true. He's, you know, he's not some sort of like guru. He's not a therapist, although all these things are definitely helpful in knowing Jesus. He is a suffering Messiah. He is the crucified one. And the third thing, though, is, of course, is that the Jesus that we meet in Scripture, suffering king, 
but also a king who has come into his glory. That's what he says in verse 16, very last line. Uh, is that right? No, that's the wrong verse. Uh, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? By the way, enter his glory does not mean the ascension. It doesn't mean to go up back to heaven. It means to be resurrected and to be vindicated as the Lord of the universe, God in flesh, the creator God who has now become human in order to save us. However, you'll notice from the story that the disciples have now had scripture explained to them, opened up to them. They now see that the Messiah was a suffering one, but their eyes are still not opened because there's one more piece to the puzzle. There's two things that they need, and both of these go together. Both of these go together. One is scripture, and the other is they need the breaking of the bread. Their eyes are not going to be open until the breaking of the bread. Now, first of all, what, do we, what, what does it mean that their eyes were closed? I don't know if it's super helpful to like, was well, like Jesus' face hazy? Or we don't know, but we do know that it was God who was behind this. Uh, this actually is verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That passive tense there is a really good indication that it wasn't that they're just stupid, but some, somebody was keeping their eyes from recognizing Jesus until they got the two pieces of the puzzle clicked together, Scripture and this breaking of the bread. So look down uh, with me at verse uh, 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. Uh, we did an evening prayer liturgy on Wednesday evenings. This is that we start off by saying, Stay with us, Lord, for it's evening, and the day is almost over. This is actually a quote from here, from Luke 24. Um, so Jesus went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, it, and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures, Jesus reveals himself to them as he breaks the bread at the meal. Now, what's that about? So, speaking of playing the game but not knowing all the rules, or putting together the piece of equipment and not having the directions correct. We in the West, we're so like, we, we prioritize, I say this every service, we prioritize so much the mental or the internal that the notion that God would somehow work through the physical. There's a part of us, that every one of us, uh, even, even those of you who are lifelong Lutherans, lifelong sacramentalists, th those of you who are Catholics or grew up Catholic, even all of us in the West are like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Why would the breaking of the bread have anything to do with them understanding Jesus? So first of all, let me just say this, is it's in the story, and so you kind of got to roll with it. We just have to assume that Luke didn't botch it. Well, you know, if Luke had been alive today, he would have known that that's kind of crass, that's kind of like, what is that voodoo stuff with the, with the breaking of the bread, knowing Jesus? No, Luke knows exactly what he's doing. Luke knows that the disciples will not see who he is until A, he explains who he is in his word, and B, shows himself to them. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. This is absolutely essential. Look at the verbs. What does it mean, the breaking of the bread? Does it just mean you, know, you eat bread and you think about Jesus? That's good if you do. That's good if you do think about Jesus when you eat bread. But there's something else going on here. Look at verse, uh, let me find it, verse 30 here. Jesus was at table with them. He took the bread and, and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, in Luke, actually this is the, this is the case in, in, in Matthew and Mark and in Paul and 1 Corinthians, 
When, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul describe the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, Jesus uh, giving his disciples the, the, the Last Supper, he uses these four verbs. He uses these four verbs. I'm going to say them just in a minute when we have communion. I'll look back at verse 30 again. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it or gives thanks for it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. Those four verbs. Now, do you think that like, Luke, Luke is just in a rut? Like he just is like, he just loves those four verbs. No, Luke is trying to draw your attention. Remember, this is written for us, right? This is Luke's way of telling us how you and I here in St. James can know personally, not just know that Jesus is risen today, but have a relationship with the risen Jesus. And he's saying to us, Jesus is using the same words as the Lord's Supper. What do you guys make of that? What do you guys think about that? What Luke is saying is, is that, I'll just try to be explicit here. You know, there's two basic ways here in the text that, G, that, 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 that Jesus is saying to you, you can know me. One is through the scripture, through reading the Bible, and the second is through Holy Communion, these two. If you want to, and when I talk to people who say to me, I just wish I knew God, but I just feel like God is so distant, I wish I knew him better. A lot of times it comes down to one of these two are missing. One of these two are missing. A lot of times I'll talk to Lutherans who are like, I just wish that like I knew God better. And when I start pro- uh, probing and asking questions, I'll find out they don't actually ever read their Bibles. I mean, maybe they'll have, you know, maybe they'll get the day of the, ver- you know, the, day of the, the verse of the day that they'll look at, but they're not actually in Scripture. So, of course, you can't know Jesus because Jesus shows himself to us in Moses and all the prophets and in the gospel writers and in Paul and in Acts and in Peter and the lot. If you're not in God's word, you're not going to see who Jesus is. When I talk to my evangelical friends, a lot of times it will come down to this, is that they're looking, I mean, they, they, they study the Bible, but they're looking for this like psychological or internal experience where they really feel Jesus being present. And what Luke is saying is, no, actually, you need something more concrete something more physical, something tangible that you can lay your hands on, that you can put in your mouth, that you can smell, that you can see. That's what you need. This is how, in Jesus, knowing who we are, knowing that we're both people who have insides and outsides, knows that we're only gonna know him if he comes to us on the inside and on the outside. He gives us his word, we read it, we understand it, Our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit opens our minds to it. He gives us himself in the breaking of the bread. In fact, Breaking of the bread is one of Luke's favorite code words for just communion in general. It's one of his favorite code words for communion in general. In the book of Acts, in Acts 2 verse 47, the church devotes themselves, Luke says, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayers. Later on in Acts chapter 20, Luke's describing this uh, sermon, uh, this church service that Paul's preaching at. And in chapter 20 verse 7, Luke says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Jesus actually just uses breaking of the bread as shorthand for the entire worship service. We get together and we meet Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Now, some of you have questions. I have questions. Why bread? Why eating? What does that have to do with anything? So again, first of all, I don't know if I have all the answers. Well, actually, I know I don't have all the answers about this. But one thing we can say is that it's right here in the Bible. It's like right there in black and white in front of us, is that God reveals Jesus to these two disciples through his word and through the breaking of the bread. That's right there. That's right there. But there's something else that's going on here that Luke is trying to pull your mind to. Do you remember way back in the Garden of Eden, 
Do you remember that the enemy comes and says to Adam and Eve, if you will disobey God and eat this fruit, I can give you pleasure, the fruit is beautiful, it looks delicious, and I can give you power. You will be wise like God. You will know good and evil. In fact, the way he, do you remember the way he says it? He says, if you disobey God and eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. So Adam and Eve take the fruit and they disobey God and their eyes are opened. But now instead of having the wisdom of God, they just see their own nakedness. Their eyes were opened, Genesis 2 says, and they knew that they were naked. Their eyes are open to their own nakedness and shame. Their eyes are open now to their own relational brokenness. Their eyes are open to the death that they themselves have introduced into the world. And when God comes to fix that, the problem that humans caused with food, does it not make sense that he would fix the problem with food? Does it, not, does it not make sense that he would give us a food that's going to open our eyes? Which in fact is what happens. And Luke is doing this intentionally, by the way. Luke is saying, think back to Genesis 2. Adam and Eve eat the food, which opens their eyes to their own misery. And now Jesus is giving them their food, which verse 31 their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. That's salvation. That's salvation. God gives them the food that's going to rescue them. Oh, the bread of his body, the wine of his blood. This is not, but, but this is not a holy communion service that they're doing here, right? But it's meant to evoke this. And it's meant for us, the readers, to be reminded that this is how God reveals himself to us. Okay, let's wrap up. What are we gonna do with this? So first of all, these two things go together. That when I talk about the, the, the struggles of my Lutheran friends and I talk about the struggles of my evangelical friends, a lot of times they're both on the right track. They're both doing great, but they're not, they're not bringing the two of these things together. They're not bringing like, the rigorous study, immersion of themselves in God's word with like, faithfully coming to receive God's body and blood, the body and blood of Jesus in the Holy Sacrament. And these two things go together. Their eyes are opened in verse 31, in the breaking of the bread. But look, uh, look down in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It's the scriptures which get opened to us as well. The same word is used there for both of them. God gives himself to us in holy community. He gives himself to us in scriptures, in, in holy scripture. And they go together. You can't separate us. It's in, the breaking of, it's in the breaking of the bread that the disciples finally realize the scripture makes sense. But it's only in scripture that you can know that this breaking of the bread is actually God revealing himself to us. It's only in God's word that we know that this is, that this is really true. So keep the two things together. Keep the, you, you know, be people who are, um, actually, let, let me just wrap up by saying this. Be people of the word. Be people of the word. Uh, um, we all need to be in God's word. And, and, and again, if you are like a portals of prayer person, that's great. If you are, you know, if, if you are, you know, if you have the app that's giving you the Bible verse of the day, that is great. It's a great start. But what Jesus doesn't do to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he does not proof text them. He opens up to them the whole story. One of you said to me a few weeks ago, and I don't remember which one it was, who, 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 who of you it was, but they were like, what do you think about just like reading 1 Samuel just for the hay of it? Like just to read it for fun. So like, yes, that's what's going on here. You're just reading the story just for fun. Get yourself into the story and start looking for Jesus in the story. I mean, we're all doing great, but be people of the word. Immerse yourself in God's word. And then finally, of course, uh, come to Holy Communion, which we're gonna do right now. And do it knowing that God values you as a human being. 
God doesn't think that you're some sort of like computer that he just needs to download the information about who he is. He wants you to experience it. He wants you to get up out of your seat and go through the drama, the reenacted Passover, Last Supper, Holy Communion drama of coming to the rail and actually physically bumping shoulders with somebody next to you, kneeling down and having a real live human being hand you the bread, to take the bread and to look at it, to smell it, to have a tangible, visceral experience and know Jesus is giving himself to you. All right, amen. Let's um, uh, have Holy Communion. Uh, Offering, and then we'll have communion. praise you and glorify you for uh, being the kind of God who not content to destroy your rebellious creatures but made yourself like one of us coming here to take upon to, to, to take upon yourself our flesh to take upon yourself our sins to live the life which we should have lived to die the death which we should have died to rise from the dead to bring new life and hope and purpose and your kingdom into our world, Lord, in your mercy. 
Father, every single one of us in here this morning needs that resurrection power from you. We all are struggling with all different kinds of brokenness. Some of us trapped in habitual sins. Some of us feeling immense amounts of guilt for particularly heinous sins which we've committed. Some of us struggling with pain, chronic pain in our body or sickness, brokenness in our body. Some of us struggling with relational brokenness, relationships which have been fractured, which we have no ability in ourselves to fix. Some struggling with financial, deep financial concerns. A lot of us just struggling with anxiety and depression in general. Father, we know and confess that the answer to those problems is the resurrection of your son Jesus. Would you make that real here to us this morning as your people? Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for all of our sister churches in the area, for each of the LCMS churches this morning around us who are preaching your word faithfully. And as your people are gathered together singing praises to you, celebrating your sacrament, hearing your word, we pray that you would bless, bless their time with you, bless the service that you're giving to them by knowing you more and more, by being sanctified. Father, we pray that you would bless every single one of the Bible-believing churches in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. And as your word is preached this morning, May your gospel go forth in such a way that our town is transformed into a beacon of hope to the area around us. May Glen Carbon become a place where righteousness and humility and love and truth-telling and faithfulness and relationships and praise and worship of you be the name of the game. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things because you've allowed us, invited us into your throne room, united us to your son Jesus in baptism, called us by your name, made us your daughters and sons through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we now come to, this, come to your throne room and pray these prayer requests boldly in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you. O Lord our God, King of all creation, for you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Grant us your Spirit, gracious Father, that we may give heed to the testament of your Son in true faith, and above all, firmly take to heart the words with which Christ gives to us his body and blood for our forgiveness. By your grace, lead us to remember and give thanks for the boundless love which he manifested to us when by pouring out his precious blood he saved us from your righteous wrath and from sin, death, and hell. Grant that we may receive the bread and wine that is his body and blood as a gift, guarantee, and pledge of his salvation. Graciously receive our prayers, deliver and preserve us. To you alone, O Father, be all glory, honor, and worship with the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and blessed it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. We know that God gives himself to us in Holy Scripture. We know that God gives himself to us in Holy Communion. We also know from Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and other texts, God gives himself to us in Christian community. So find somebody that you haven't talked to recently or somebody that you want to work on a relationship with and find them right now. Go in peace. <laughs>